0: This talk was given by Vanessa Zuisei Goddard-Sensei. Zuisei-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings, or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisei-goddard.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. It's good to be here with all of you, sisters, wild grasses... So Jin Sensei and I were talking about this retreat and how to best use the time that we have together, we were, mm, we were walking a live line between um, tradition and investigation. And we have acknowledged before in, in these wild grasses retreats that we really don't know what a schedule or a training f- framework that was um, designed by and for women would look like. It hasn't really been done in our tradition, or if it has, you know, perhaps not for a long time. And so women, nuns primarily, have always adapted themselves to the schedules and the training models that were um, in turn adapted from the models created by and for men. And the women had more or less agency, depending on the place and the lineage, the customs, to modify these models as they saw fit. But as far as I know, they were never really able to create something from scratch. And this is our case, too. And yet, for some years now, Hojin-sensei has very courageously, I feel, gently but insistently, been um, pushing against the edges of the way we do things here and really asking, really asking, can this be done in a different way to better suit this body, this mind, this way of being, these strengths, this, these inclinations, this temperament, And she's also asked, is there something that we're not doing that we should, because we're missing it and we don't even know that we're missing it. And in asking, I, f- for one, feel she's, she's um, helped me to ask as well. And I, I, was, I was reflecting on this, I realized, it's not something that I do naturally. I mean, I, I came and it was a packaged deal, and I accepted it and loved it. And um, at a certain point was very clear that this was going to be my life, this was going to be my path, um, but didn't really question it that much, frankly. Not for a while. And, um, you know, I think some of it, I I don't know if it was just... um, uh, habit, or some of it is, is personality. Uh, I, I, I said before, you know, I'm very straight, very linear, and she's not. <laughs> um, we, we, we told the people when we did our uh, um, Four Immeasurables uh, retreat together, you know, we're both Pisces, actually, but you couldn't, <laughs> I don't think you'd be able to tell. <laughs> Um, that during one ango, and I, I was trying to remember the theme of the angle. I, I, I don't remember what it was, you, you may, but uh, I was still using the locker room downstairs, and uh, I would take off my clothes when I was changing and, and pile them very neatly, very well folded, uh, on, the, on the bench. And then I would come in after zazen, and they would just be like, eh. And I thought, you know, that's odd, and then I started noticing it, you know, once, twice, three times. And at a certain point, I remember hitting me. like, oh, I know who this is. <laughs> and uh, um, I actually felt that I remember feeling it as a, as a wholly uh, appropriate and loving gesture, actually. I felt that Ho uh, Jin Sensei was kind of... Um, daring me, you know, to, to, uh, to see, you know, how do I respond to a very, very tiny amount of messiness, uh, which I don't like <laughs> at all. Um, and, you know, that she was kind of really, in a sense, asking, you know, what lines um, are you drawing for yourself? What boxes do you um, enthusiastically put yourself into, and do you have to? It, you know, maybe I'm just projecting a lot more into it, but I, I remember at the time feeling it very, very lovingly. And, you know, clearly we did not, uh, go radical and change the whole container altogether. Obviously we, we didn't, uh, but, but there, you know, there's, there are changes here and there. And, um, I feel, you know, very much in that spirit of observing and refining and really seeing, you know, what what works and what doesn't. When do you really bring yourself to a form, a training? And when does it actually need to adapt? Not to accommodate. uh, Well, yes, to accommodate, but to to, uh, accommodate is not the right word. I to acknowledge to acknowledge this way of being. And so one of the things that we wanted to do this weekend was to bring our ancestors into the room, you know, to name and be in the presence of the many women who, um, whose lives and presence have allowed us to be here today to practice and train in the ways that we have been doing and hopefully will continue to do, but also um, in doing so to invite them here, to honor and offer gratitude to them, to bow and meet them, as Master Dogan says. And because throughout the weekend we are threading through the stillness and the silence some of these stories of the women ancestors, um, inviting them into, our, into the zendo, inviting them to our seats during zazen, but I think also, you know, to, to eat with us during orioki, to work alongside us. We decided that we would make these uh, formal talks just a little bit shorter and let them be um, maybe just a kind of invocation, a summoning of these women ancestors. And so in my own case, I moved around quite a bit, actually, as I was trying to decide who or what to, to speak about. Because you know, so many of the stories about the, the Buddhist women, Buddhist nuns mostly, are, are kind of double-edged swords, I feel. You know, they, some of them speak of beautiful women who scarred themselves quite um, drastically in order to be allowed to practice, just to be taken seriously as practitioners and to not be uh, constantly harassed or women who waited all their lives <clears throat> for their husbands to die so they could do what they wanted, always wanted to do, which was simply to practice. Sometimes we have too little information. Or sometimes the picture we, we get is of, of a woman really acting more like a man. Or, you know, so, so many of the poems say, like a piece of, of dry wood, um, immune to sense pleasures. And you know, I know there's more you know to these poems, but um, as I as I find my way in, I, I ask myself you know, so so what do I learn? How do I enter into these stories? What are the examples? What are the teachings that I that I can take in and use in the most skillful way? And so in the end, I really, I decided to go back, all the way back, really, to to the source, to Prajnaparamita, the mother of all Buddhas, the womb of all Buddhas. As, As that dedication says that we chant in the morning, the one who illuminates all delusions and dispels our fears. And I've always liked the fact that in both Eastern and Western traditions, wisdom is personified as female, in Sophia, and Greek and Roman philosophy. And of course, in Buddhism, Prajnaparamita is the perfection of wisdom. But she's also the source, the source, the, the place from which all Buddhas emerge, that womb from which Buddhas are born. And the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 lines says that she's the one who shows the world for what it is. The one who shows the world for what it is which means she has to be the one who is the world as it is. And so I've been reflecting on this. What does that mean? What does it mean to be and therefore reveal yourself as the world, as the true world? How do you be truth without cutting any part of yourself out? Without smothering, silencing, or otherwise suppressing or pretending to be other than yourself. Even if that means that what you manifest in a moment is darkness, is not wisdom. So, in other words, how do you self liberate within your delusion, with your delusion, because of your delusion? And I, don't, um, I certainly don't claim to have an answer, but I, I do sense that it must involve a whole lot of space. Boundless amounts of acceptance and equal doses of fierceness and kindness. And I realize I speak of that those two qualities together often because I think they so call to me. I've told that that anecdote of a man who who asked uh, a Maasai wise man what, what were the characteristics of a great warrior. And the Maasai said, when the moment calls for fierceness, a Maasai is ferocious. When the moment calls for kindness, a Maasai is utterly tender. A great warrior knows which moment is which. And so, starting first with with fierceness, someone sent me a a poem, an excerpt, a fragment of a poem um, by a a woman by the name of Enheduanna, and she was a Sumerian high priestess, and she's actually identified as, as, she's the earliest identified author in history, male or female, so this poem is dated to about 2300 uh, before the common era. So almost 5,000 years ago, what is now Iraq. And at the time, there was a pair of, of moon gods, male and female. Nana was the moon god and Inanna the moon goddess. And in this hymn that in- Enhidwana wrote, she's really uh, praising Inanna's fierceness and power. And so as I said, this is just a, a fragment of it. It says O winged lady, like a bird you scavenge the land, like a charging storm you charge, like a roaring storm you roar, you thunder in thunder, snort in rampaging winds, your feet are continually restless, carrying your harp of signs you breathe out the music of mourning. What was once chanted of Nana, let it now be yours, that you are as lofty as heaven let it be known. That you are as wide as the earth, let it be known. That you devastate the rebellious, let it be known. That you roar at the land, let it be known. That you rain your blows on their heads, let it be known. That you feast on corpses, let it be known. That your glance is lifting toward them, let it be known. That your glance is like lightning, striking, let it be known. That you are victorious, let it be known that this is not said of Nana. It is said of you. This is your greatness and you alone are the high one. And what struck me you know, when, when I read it is really how unapologetic, how unapologetic this expression is, how unafraid of itself and its own power so it's not shy, it's not modest. And it made me think of, of uh, Hojinsen's saying how many of us women should make a practice when someone praises us of saying, yes, it's true. Thank you, it's true. <laughs> some of us need to cultivate humility, some of us should go for fanash. Yes, thank you, it's true. And um, maybe because there's... there's um, Maybe I just haven't come across it. You know, expressions that are really this. Um, um, actually, there are. There, there are in Tibetan Buddhism. You know, the Dakini's, the fierce uh, deities, are, are very much seen as both the cr- creators and destroyers. And Dakini, um, the, the if I remember correctly, is also a, an embodiment of, of emptiness in female form. But but there is this um, uh, permission, self-granted perhaps, to to be that um, elemental, you know, to to be that um, embodied, that empowered, self-empowered. So I just feel it it it, it expresses a very a very particular kind of, of spiritual strength that that knows its worth and is not afraid to claim it. And it reminded me, I mean, we've been listening to a number of talks by um, Reverend Kyoto Williams uh, who's, you know, very much um, speaking a lot right now and um, and at the end of one of her talks she, um, she tells the story of being at a retreat where, you know, she had Gotten paid as she normally does for retreats, but then her attendant at the end of the retreat passed around a hat for any further dana that people wanted to offer. And the person who was um, organizing the retreat was really freaked out about it and saying, you know, people already paid. I mean, they, they don't need to do this anymore. And she said, let me just say this. She said, given... And I don't remember exactly the words, but something like, it doesn't matter how many lifetimes you live, you can never uh, pay a black woman enough. <laughs> and I was so uh, really bowled over <laughs> by, by that statement. First of all, I think it's true. But second of all, that she was unafraid to say that. And I am certain that there would be those who would criticize her, but this is the dharma. You shouldn't even be asking for compensation you know, for the dharma it is it is a it is a labor of love it is about selflessness it is about service, and of course, all of those things are true but I don't think that's uh, in a sense had anything to do with what she was doing but when does when does selflessness become self erasure when is uh, what an act like this come out of confidence, out of strength, out of knowing your worth, and when is it said arrogance? And in fact, this is not always clear. I mean, I feel for myself is not always clear. I've had this conversation with my teacher a number of times. Uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm coming forward, if I'm pressing for something, I'm fighting for something, is it that I just want what I want? Or do I need to? Am I sensing there's some, I need to speak? I need to uh, come forward. And I realized at a certain point, well, he can't answer that for me. I need to answer that for myself. And so if prajna is wisdom, and wisdom is seeing things as they are, and seeing things as they are is seeing them as empty of self-nature, what does it mean to realize selflessness and, when needed, to embody self fully? What does it mean to practice, to cultivate selflessness in this female form? And I don't mean realize it, because selflessness, from an absolute point of view, is selflessness. Male or female, gay or straight, young or old. But I mean to practice it, to embody it, which I really feel is by no means the same thing. So once again, how do we show the world as it is, which means show ourselves as we are? How do we bring forth this fierceness and this kindness, clarity and ease, and a deep deep understanding of what it really means to be fully human? And one of the reasons I was drawn to to this poem is because it is so old. I mean, not as old as Prajnaparamita, who in a sense is Time itself. She is the passing of seasons. She is old age, sickness, and death. And like Inanna, she's a life-giving and a life-taking force. There is death in Paramita. And it's interesting, again, that when Enhidwana composed these hymns, and there's said to be 42 of them, there's nothing like them existed. At the time. And she actually says that. She says that in writing them, she says to her father, My king, something has been created that no one has created before. She knows what she's doing and she's not afraid to claim it. And then there's kindness. And I was um, rereading Rengetsu's story, whom most of you know, is the author of The Wild Grasses Poem, after which this retreat is named. And she was a nun, 19th century Zen nun, potter, calligrapher. And when she was young, she also trained as a samurai. I didn't know that. So um, she could kick your butt, and she could also be infinitely, infinitely, I would say not, not just kind. Um, it seemed like she really, in her life, she really went out of her way to care, to care for others. You know, they say that she was constantly. As she became more well known, um, she had a lot of loss in her life. Um, two, her two husbands died. Her her children died at a certain point, and she had wanted to practice um, early on, but her husband wouldn't. Her first husband wouldn't let her, and she. Her uncle, who became her adoptive father took her into a monastery, and that's when she started training. And um, perhaps one of the reasons she was so, so tender because, was because of so much, so much uh, heartbreak. And she decided at a certain point after, after he died, her uncle died, she was no longer allowed to stay at the monastery, at the temple where she was training. So she decided to um, leave... and and become a wandering uh, nun, but she needed to make a living. And it's said that she considered she was an expert go player, and she thought that she would teach and and make money that way, but then she realized that a lot of uh, men would not be willing to learn from a woman, and so she thought that wouldn't work. And at a certain point, she settled on pottery, and began to, to make her own pottery and became so well known for it that it said she, she constantly had to move around because would, people were constantly um, uh, asking for her work and they would, they would congregate wherever she was. And so she always had her, all her things packed in a couple of boxes so she could move whenever she needed to. And then she started uh, inscribing her calligraphy on them and she would also do other pieces of, of calligraphy and um, it said that when when she became very famous and other struggling artists uh, she she would hear about them she would inscribe her calligraphy on their work because that would make it easier to sell and she did this with someone who became one of the um, most well-known Naga painters he, she said to him you know when times are hard just um, she wrote a, a calligraphy on a piece of, of rice paper and said, when times are hard, do your art on this and sell it. And some years later, he was very well known. It said she would give her robe you know, to passing beggars on the street. And she even, apparently um, a, a group of potters decided to uh, fake her Pottery. And they said, you know, your pottery is easy to fake, but your calligraphy isn't, so will you inscribe your calligraphy on our fake pottery? And she did. She did. She uh, inscribed a bunch of the bowls, and then she gave them some of her own bowls so they could copy them better. I mean, talk about non, um, being non-threatened. Not needing to protect, not needing to um, advance yourself. And one story says that one night a thief came into her room and she lit a lamp for him so that he could see better. (laughs) And she said, you know, you're not going to find anything of value here, but why don't you come in? You must be really hungry if you're so desperate, so let me make you a bowl of tea rice. I mean, how fearless and how tender you need to be in order to respond in this way. How undefended how wise, how clear-seeing of another's suffering. And by this point, she was probably older also. So she's an older woman by herself. This guy comes into her room, and this is her response. Of course, this is a story that came to us, but still. So to me, this is Prajnaparamita, you know, that is unguarded, but not naive, because she probably could have kicked his butt if she needed to ferocious and kind, strong and soft. And when it becomes embodied, it really is none other than herself in this case. She knows the ground upon which she stands and she does not fail to cover it. I often think of Mahaprajapati, I try to to place myself in her being in her mind when she decided to, to gather those 500 women and to lead them in shaving off their heads and putting on their saffron robes and making that pilgrimage to Vasali to petition the Buddha to, to enter, to let them enter the monastic sangha. And, you know, and maybe it wasn't 500 women. Maybe that's an exaggeration. Maybe it was 10 or 5. And still... That the courage that it took for her to buck every convention of her time and culture that remains. Because they were doing what women were not supposed to do. And they were saying, We will no longer wait to inhabit our lives, our bodies. We can't keep playing the supporting role. We need to own our own paths. And this is, of course, what the first women in any field give us. Right? The courage to say, I'm sorry that you don't like this. I'm sorry that, this, that you don't agree. I'm sorry that this threatens you. But I'm going to do it anyway because I have to. And so how do we truly ask, what does it mean to be Wisdom. What is my offering for this life, this time, this circumstance? How do I listen um, carefully and patiently for the answer? And then how do I step forward and claim it? And Rengetsu, although she doesn't answer, she encourages, she she is watching a group of nuns uh, going on their begging rounds and she offers a poem to them. That could be a poem to us. First steps on the long path to truth. Please do not dream your lives away. Walk on to the end. For more talks, to get information about Zuisé Sensei's upcoming teachings or to join her email list, please visit Vanessa's we